Hi, this is Steve with the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and I'm again at Monster Bash October 2019, and I'm having a great time, and I'm being joined with Victoria Reskin. Riskin, right? Riskin. Riskin. And um, I just want to let people know she's done a lot of different things that people don't realize. Producer, writer. Um, she's also got a PhD in counseling psychology. She was the first woman president of the Writers Guild of America. And that was just a few of the things on the list of stuff I was able to find about her. <laughs> and she's also the daughter of Faye Ray and Robert Riskin. And I just want to thank you for taking time to let me interview you today. Well, I, I just like the look of you, Steve, so so that's why I'm here. You look like a good guy. <laughs> Do you like you. Steve or Steven? I go by either way. Okay, great. So uh, thank you, and I hope you've been enjoying your time here at Monster Bash. Very much so. It's uh, wonderful to meet a whole new uh, group of people and people who are passionate about this uh, genre of film and uh, really appreciate it and appreciate the technology and the creativity of it. So... Uh, Plus, just meet nice people, which you find in this part of the world. And I was uh, talking to you yesterday and seeing your Q&A. You also have come across a very nice person. I mean, you're very easy to talk to. And it's just just happy to have the opportunity that you came out to us to let us have those moments and find, get those memories from you about your parents. Okay. But before mm -hmm. we get into your parents, mm -hmm. you, like I said, a producer and a writer, and you've mm -hmm. done several different um, TV movies. Right. And one of them with Mary Tyler Moore and Bernadette Peters. And if I remember right, it's The, the Last Best Year. Right. And I think what Mary Tyler Moore plays a uh, psychiatrist. She actually, it's based on my own story. Oh, really? So I had been uh, practicing psychology for 10 years or so. And I was restless to write something and uh, put something down on paper. And it was the story of my relationship with a woman who had come to see me when she actually had, uh, she was terminal with cancer. And uh, my reluctance to kind of work with her, knowing that she didn't have a lot of people in her life and I would become a very important person if I spent the next few months with her. And her reluctance to see me because she was a very private person and Mary Tyler Moore played me, and Bernadette Peters, who most people think of as the voluptuous uh, singer on Broadway, plays of this very demure, private uh, kind of woman. And she did; a, they both did a beautiful job. The two women, Mary Tyler Moore and Bernadette Peters, became best friends as a result of making that film. And we did it as a, a television film. My husband was already writing and producing, and he loved the story, and we did it together as a partnership. And that was the real transition in my life from being a psychologist to, <coughs> excuse me, to being a, um, a writer and a producer. And I remember seeing that. That's, I'm trying to remember. It came out in the 80s, I think? Yeah, late late 80s, yeah. And I remember seeing it on TV, and it was just, it was. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I'm not even going to try to go through right, all the things. Right, right. But, I mean, when you had the, those two great actresses and you get material to work with and, and uh, the, the writing, the direction, it was just, I mean, I still remembered it. When I saw a little bit, I was like, wait a minute, I remember that film, and I was remembering yeah. bits and pieces of it. <laughs> you know, people still watch it, and um, when you go to Amazon or you look at the reviews, I'm so heartened by the fact that people are deeply moved by the film. 
the style of the film, which is interesting, I because I looked at it recently, and it's a bit slower than movies are today. It takes its time to tell a story, and yet uh, when people just relax and allow the story to happen, they are pulled into it in this very intimate way, and it's a story of relationship and women and and um, psychology and 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 the challenges uh, someone faces at the end of their life and. So it was, for me, a valentine to the psychology community, but it was also a way in which I could pay tribute to this woman who uh, had been my patient, who I cared about deeply, and whose life I felt could matter to others if I could tell the story right. And I think you did, you know, at least from my opinion. And obviously it sounds like a lot of reviewers do too, and it it Mm -hmm. still holds up today and I think that's the sign of a great work yes I think it does hold up and I'm very grateful that it does (laughs) because that doesn't always happen and there was an era and I think it's come back a little bit on television where you could have the opportunity to do a really good small movie about something that would touch people's hearts and um, so that's why I went into film writing and producing after that uh, as a and shifted out of uh, being a you know a psychologist who with a private practice because um, it gave me an opportunity to communicate and tell other kinds of stories to a, and and work with a larger group of people that is the American public yeah oh I agree and um, there was another film that you did and I know it's, it's I've personally I've never seen it but I mm-hmm. saw the actors that were on it and I can only imagine what it would be like and it was a my My Antonia, yeah. So My Antonia is uh, based on a novel by a wonderful American writer named Willa Cather. And she wrote at the end of the last, well, at the end of the, at the beginning of the 20th century primarily. uh, uh, Yeah, at the end of the 19th century. But um, it's the story of a young woman, young girl, who is an immigrant from, they say, Bohemia, what but they mean Eastern Europe. And it was a big f- influx of immigrants who came to the heartland of the country and established themselves. And it was at a time when the country needed people to come and they were building the railroads across the country. And uh, she doesn't speak any English and her family somehow expect to be greeted by streets paved with gold and life to be wonderful in America. And it's extremely hard. It's very uh, rough and they have to build a a house for themselves out of mud in the middle of Nebraska where there are no trees and there are terrible winds and nothing to stop the wind and it's hard to to make just get enough food and a young man uh, comes and lives nearby to live with his grandparents and that uh, his grandparents in the film were played by Eva Marie Saint and Jason Robards and the young man was played by uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, but in the story, the young man is totally enchanted by this young immigrant girl. And it was a very uh, forward-thinking piece of writing because it talked about the difficulties of the immigrant experience. It talked about the heartland, which nobody was writing about in those days. And Willa Cather is a beautiful writer. Um, and it's a kind of love relationship, but it it was a love... Uh, a, not just a, uh, I think he's sexy, she's sexy kind of love. It was deeper, much deeper than that. It was about 
mutual appreciation and um, and the, the young immigrant girl is a very earthy uh, young woman and and feisty and she she ends up in a way having to make her way make a meager living and he's destined to go off to Harvard where his parents want him to go to college and um, so as much as they love each other their destinies are pull them apart He's going to have a fine education, become a lawyer, and she's be going to become a farm girl. And so, but he never forgets her, and his whole view of life is really shaped by what she has taught him. And they keep coming back to each other as deep friends. It's their soulmates. And I love this idea of love being about soulmateship. So we made that film, and um, I'm really proud of it. I love that film. I, from what you describe it, I definitely want to see that film now because on my dad's side of the family, a lot of them came from the, Ch the, the Czechoslovakian area. And I have a lot of relatives from the family lineage that live in the Midwest. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, you'll find it very familiar in a sense. Uh, <clears throat> and the hardships they go through are tremendous, but... At the same time, it's about resilience and surviving, and particularly this girl. We found a wonderful Romanian actress who played that part. She had done a small part in Schindler's List, and um, she's just she was just magical. And there were many famous young actresses who tried out for the part, but this was the girl who could embody Antonia, and. Um, and these two young people who never forget each other and always look for each other as a kind of, as I said, uh, finding this heart connection, uh, soulmateship that th that they had from the time they were young. I mean, we talked about just two of your movies, and you've been blessed of picking, I don't know whether you've had a, your, your hands in as a producer and, and getting those people directly, but I mean, you're, you're talking about stellar talent with right. five um, well-known actors actresses mm -hmm. and you know still today you mm -hmm. know, i mean sadly some of them have passed uh, way too young but they're still like neil patrick harris but that was when he was just starting to really come into his own right that was after he was doogie hauser and he was looking for something more mature to do but he was still young and he was pr he was wonderful and uh, every time i see him i just beam because he was he was just such a he was great he was, it was not an easy part because so much of the action really came from Antonia and he was kind of reactive. Um, and yet uh, he, he just was, he was seamless in the, in the part. Um, you know, a lot of times actors want to play something where they're more the drivers of the action. And this one, he was willing to be more the reactor and she draws him in. And, um, but the, the, he's the narrator of the story too. It, it's it's hard when you in that role, but I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this film. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I think I think when when I saw Jason Robards, I mean even Marie Saint. Yeah. Before I even saw Neil Patrick Harris, I was already just drawn. Yeah. To that movie because, I mean, sometimes we are burned when you have certain you see certain actors or actresses' names, and, <clears> and you get there and it's like oh, the material wasn't there. Right. For them, but. Uh, this one sounds like I think it's going to be right in my wheelhouse. Good. Uh, well, and share it with your family too. Yeah. Well, we might we might actually, if I can find it, we might actually maybe do one of our reviews with that one, this particular movie. Oh, that'd be great. Or love to know how you like last, it. The last Unless, best year. Okay. One of those two. I think if I'm if I'm able to get a hold of a nice copy because 
we can all watch it and, and enjoy it. And, and that yeah, and then people. talk about it. Yeah. And that's that's one of the points of our podcast, to give other people a chance to these hidden gems that people mm-hmm. forget about that are out there because there's millions of movies. There are millions of movies and picking ones that really stay with you or mean something, you know, finding those so that you can have a nice conversation about them. I think that's a wonderful, that's what movies are supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about opening up parts of your intellect and your heart that you can take a deep dive and have a family discussion and that's the best of it. I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's, there's sometimes it's like, like I say, there's a, a moment where you just want popcorn entertainment. You just want to go there, just and eh, just let me be entertained. But there's other times you just want to have that challenge and then right. that discussion. <laughs> and that's what I love about theater, movies, is all mm-hmm. those different things. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned earlier you're a writer, not just of screenplays, mm-hmm. but you've just written a book. Mm-hmm. And I thought you might want to talk about that, and we can transition from that into sure. your parents. Well, uh, I reached that point in my life when I wanted to think and know more about my origins, my family, where they came from, uh, like so many people do. You know, you're just telling me that your family was from Czechoslovakia. My family on my father's side came from Belarus. Um, But how did I know where they came from? Well, I began to dig through old boxes and find uh, uh, letters and telegrams and information and um, both my parents came from very poor backgrounds. My mother, Faye Ray, the actress, who was famous for King Kong, but she came from, she was born in Canada, but she was primarily raised in a, a very dusty little mining town in Utah. And then her father left the family and they moved to Salt Lake City. And by the time she was 14 years old, uh, she was on a train with a young man who said maybe to the family, I think I can get Faye in the movies. And the movies were just sort of hitting the country in the silent era movie. And she was very excited about, you know, she could lose herself in the in the films. And my father came from a, a a little uh, family that settled itself first in the Lower East Side of New York, like a lot of Jewish families did, and then migrated to uh, Brooklyn when they had a little money. And by the time he was 14, he was working in the garment business, and pretty soon uh, one of his employers sent him down to Florida to produce little movies. A lot of people in the garment business were also investing in movies. I'm not quite sure why, but that that was just a fun way to make a little extra money. Never knew about that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And, uh, but they ended up, both of them, in Hollywood. And both of them had extraordinary success in Hollywood. My mother, in addition to making King Kong, starred in over 120 films. And I've done a been digging and looking and finding, starting in the silent era all the way through the era of television, her career, re- reconstructing both her personal life and her career. And then my father came to Hollywood after the 1929 crash when there was no work in New York. He'd been producing on Broadway. And uh, he began working at Columbia Pictures under Harry Cohen, the famous uh rather autocratic uh, uh, studio owner. And they got along very well, actually. But by the time my father had been there for two years, he'd worked on 10 films. And then within a couple of years, he had written It Happened One Night, and that swept all the Oscars. And he became really the top screenwriter in Hollywood of his era, doing Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and 
You Can't Take It With You and Lost Horizon and a number of other perhaps less famous but equally wonderful films like uh, American Madness and Lady for a Day and others that I encourage your, you guys to, to have a look at it in your family. And, and um, But my book, as I began to construct it, became not only about them and their lives, which was wonderful, and their romances and their challenges, but I also dug into what was life like in America at that time <clears throat> for people living during the Depression, for Hollywood during the Depression, for uh, the studio system, the rise of the uh, gossip columnists who had influence and power over what Hollywood actors were doing, and uh, the fun as well, and the, um, the rise of uh, the anti-communist movement, the political challenges in the country, those people who s supported Hitler in the United States and others who were very anti-Hitler and how Hollywood was react, people in Hollywood were reacting. And then through the war and then the blacklist year. So it became a very rich tapestry of their lives navigating and our family's life, because I included uh, all of us too, the, uh, what life was like as a child growing up and in Hollywood and, and the challenges that the family faced. My father had a stroke and so that was that was difficult. So it's both very personal and yet contextual. And um, I'm, I've gotten some wonderful reviews so I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I purchased the book from yesterday so obviously I haven't had a chance to read it right. but I did leaf through it and uh, you have some wonderful pictures in there which um, most people are never going to see. Yes, I, I, I did a big search, a big hunt for the right kind of pictures to include so that as you read the book, you can see the people I'm talking about, their personal family photographs, their photographs from the, the uh, social life that my parents were involved in, um, in the era from clip, you know, wonderful stills from films. And because um, I... I there, I think over 225 photographs that are that are scattered throughout. In fact, I had more, but the editor said I think I was overdoing it. <laughs> I could have done a photographic essay, but <laughs> but I I think uh, and it was beautifully uh, put together the book, uh, which most people don't think about when you go to buy a book. But there's an editor behind it who is uh, shaping it and. Guiding it, guiding it, and giving it style, and uh, so I was very fortunate to have one of the top editors at Random House work with me on the book. I think that a lot of people don't. One of the things I like to point out when I, when I do these interviews with various mm -hmm. people, like um, we've had special effects people on puppeteers, right. is that it's not just directors, it's not just actors. There's writers. It's right. a whole team right. that takes to make movies. Obviously, same thing with novels and stuff like. But you always see one person gets the credit, and you know, especially way back in the day when it was almost always the director. Well, <laughs> I think that became even more entrenched. Uh, so, in the era of my father in the 1930s, he was one of the few people who was a, what they call a soloist. He he wrote. He, he began to realize that you didn't want a lot of cooks in the kitchen, that a, that a screenplay should be a, a well-crafted and single, singular vision. So 
he wrote his screenplays that happened one night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, were entirely his own work. And um, he had the good fortune of having a very gifted director who, who um, filmed his, his screenplays, Frank Capra. But the, the story, the idea, the humor, the, the charm, the philosophy came from the screenplay and from what my yes. father wrote. And then Capra brought it to life with his excellent um, taste in terms of hiring actors and, and, and generally uh, being good on the set and working with actors. He, he wasn't always, but I think when he worked with my father, they had a lot of play, they were very playful together, and so I think that inspired Frank, and he, he had good material, and he knew he he was, he sort of had no career unless he had good material, so mm -hmm. so he was very appreciative. Because I think a lot, of, a lot of people forget that, they'll think, uh, like the director doesn't own, some directors do. Yes, yeah, some lot. do. Yeah, they yeah. do. They do a lot of things, but it's uh, it's. I'm glad nowadays it's more credit is given to the whole crew. Yes, well, when you know, I, having been a producer, you look at what you look at what the cinematographer does, and you become you know, and if they've done a good job, you are so grateful, and the editor and the music and you you know you add it all up, and it is a collaborative medium. So uh, very often directors get credit, and they do deserve credit for hopefully hiring the right people to work with them, to be part of their team. Producers have a big role in that, too. Um, if someone, you know, I, when I was a producer, if I didn't think someone was up to the task, I would say to the director, I don't think that's who we should go with. You know, we should go with someone else. So, you know, if you have a, a good team, it's a it's an exciting venture and if you have a bad team or you have an autocratic director it's a nightmare you know because no one person uh, knows everything and so so anyway um, what Capra was able to do he had a very good sound man a good editor a good cinematographer mm -hmm. and all those people formed this this great sort of uh, collaboration and uh, my dad was part of that and they they work beautifully together yeah, sometimes everything just hits like a like a like a rock group they, 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 they had that's that, right they like had a that rock moment. that's exactly they had right that moment now that's i'd exactly be remiss right. we're talking about talking about your mom yeah Faye Ray, and mm -hmm. you said you shared a wonderful story yesterday about your first time seeing king kong and i think the listeners would love to hear this story. Oh, well, I'm happy to tell the story because, you know, I mean, uh, what's kind of amazing is that uh, her name still has resonance in the, you know, public consciousness because of King Kong. It has been an enduring film. But when I was little, I was a little self-conscious about it. I mean, kids teased me at school and said, oh, my gosh, is your father an ape? You know, that kind of thing. So I was like very kind of hypersensitive about it but at some point she felt when I was about nine years old and it was coming on television that I was old enough to be able to see the film and she asked if I wanted to and I said okay um, you know I felt I was old enough to handle anything you know at nine years old you're feeling your oats a little bit so she put me in front of the television but she was quite trepidatious about it because she was afraid that I would be traumatized <laughs> seeing her in jeopardy and I got into the film, and she would pace back and forth and kind of check up on me to see if mm -hmm. I was okay. And uh, I was completely lost in the story, <clears throat> engrossed in it. And she finally came in at the end, and I was crying. 
and uh, literally sobbing. And she said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to have, were you scared to see your mommy in jeopardy? And I said, no, I was upset because of how everybody treated King Kong. And he just, he just liked you, that's all. I got what the th filmmakers <laughs> were trying to communicate, you know. It was, it was beauty killed the beast is the last line. And it was the reason that he, he never hurt her. He, he'd hurt a lot of people, but King Kong. But he, was, he, he melted uh, with his affection for her. And so that made him vulnerable. And, of course, they brought him out of the jungle. And, mm. and then in his search for her, he, all this calamity happened. And then in the end, they had to shoot him down. So, uh, anyway, after my, I explained to my mother I was upset because they killed King Kong, I was kind of upset with her because I felt she was part of the, the cabal that had <laughs> done this, you know. And then I let go of that feeling. But So... Um, King Kong, in a, its own way, as a film, is one that I've grown to love and appreciate over the years uh, and admire enormously. Uh, but it's also had its little influence on my life, you know, wherever I go, people want to ask about it. I'll talk to other people that are felt like monster kids or whatever yeah. about King Kong. They'll be like, oh, they watch it all the time. They love it. I have trouble watching it too often. I love the movie. Yeah. But as you, it, I'm always sad. Yes, you're sad. And, 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 and when they shoot him down, it's very emotional, and, right? And I'm talking to every rendition, whether the one in the 70s, the Peter uh -huh. Jackson's yeah. portrait. It's always just like, you know it's going to happen, and it's just, yeah. and it, it's hurt so well, much. It's amazing, it, it, uh, the when you so well. look at the last scene where he's been shot by the airplanes going around and the, they're strifing him. And actually, the two directors were, were in the airplanes in the film. But uh, if you were to slow that down and see his movements, it's almost like a ballet. He's, he, he's letting go and then trying to hold on again. And um, it's just a fabulous scene, choreographed. And since it was all done with stop-motion photography, the, the designer who took the little pictures of of Kong and moved his arm a little bit. I mean they they must have thought about what is the emotional feeling we want from this uh King Kong figure to uh to touch the audience. It's just so beautifully kind of choreographed. Willis O'Brien is the the one who did the special the stop motion. <coughs> mm -hmm. It did such a wonderful job of portraying that acting that emotion um, yeah. with going through every little bit and painstakingly doing that and yes and it shows especially because as you were saying when he's on the top and he's about to die he's still it's like he's looks back at Fay ray yes sort of longingly and knowing and he's gonna die and knowing he's gonna die yeah and all that is in that the subtle uh, little um way in which willis o'brien uh animated that that beast and i I think that probably I haven't I haven't reflected on the Peter Jackson version because he did a pretty good job I thought, wonderful job really in many ways I haven't reflected on um, compared the two but but I know how much Peter Jackson loved the film and um, w even wanted my mother to do a little 
to say the final line. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. But she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to be in the film. She was already almost 90 years old, you know. And I think she wanted to leave the the old one just the way it was. And and um, I agree with her in doing that because it's, like, it's just nice to have her in that one part where right. it's just great. But, again, the name of your book is? So the title of the book is Faye Ray, her name, Faye Ray and Robert Riskin, my father, a Hollywood memoir. And it is available on? At, it's available at Amazon or your local bookstore or sometimes in libraries. There's an audible version, beautifully read. Um, and uh, and there's a Kindle version, so you can find it all different ways. <laughs> and it's out there. And if you have a chance while she's doing her tour, um, you know, you can check online to see. I'm not sure how much longer your tour is going on. Yeah, so I'll be uh, in California. Um <clears throat> I'm sort of have little bits and pieces of things to do in in the West, and then I'm um, actually going to Colorado and and New Orleans, but it's on my website victoriariskin.com under events, so I try to keep up with that so people can find me. So and if and, and listeners, if you have a chance to meet her, she is very gracious and kind, and, and you you have a great time. And don't be shy about. I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to talk to so and so. Everybody's people too, and let come up and talk. Come to her. say hello. I'd love that. Exactly. Okay, thanks and thank so much you for taking the time out of your day to let me interview you and talk about your mom and dad and your movies. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was a lovely conversation with you, Stephen. Right. Thank you. Good. Okay. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to my interview with Victoria Riskin. She's a wonderful lady, and I really enjoyed having a chance to talk to her. And about her mom and her dad and her movies that she produced. Um, now, as a bonus feature, I was able to record the Q&A that she gave at Monster Bash this past October 2019. And uh, if you want, just feel free to listen in. You'll get to hear the whole thing. The only thing I missed was the very beginning when um, Ron Adams introduced her by saying Victoria Riskin. But it picks up from everything from that point on. So I hope you enjoy. And next week, we'll be back to our normal movie reviews. Talk to you later. Bye. He's an old friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that fabulous? Excuse me. And we want to thank the Armelino family. I think they're in the back yes. here. They brought the uh, Kong bus there. Thank you so much. Yes, she happened to mention, she said, uh, who, who made that? And the gentleman... Jerry Arlino said, oh, that was me. So he's sitting he said right, right next to me. So Hi, this everyone. How are you? How are you? This has been a great day. Fay day. Your mom, we were sitting in the back. And I said, your mom's been on the screen all day long. And uh, so we've been just kind of chatting before this evening's get-together. Mm -hmm. So uh, we covered a number of things, but uh, also her dad, uh, screenwriter, uh, Robert Rickson. Riskin. Uh, Riskin, I'm sorry. I'm, hey, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the, uh, there's a uh, guy who did scores, Raxon. So, excuse me. My, my bad. bad. My bad. Okay. So, anyway, moving on. So, on, we were talking King Kong, and since we have this uh, King Kong right here, uh, what uh, we, we wanted to start with talking some about that, didn't we? Well, I think you asked me a question, which was, uh, oh, yes. may I help you with your question? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, 
you know, had I had I seen my mother when I was young and what my reaction was to that? And well, that and and was there ever a, a time of watching, say, you know, let's have some popcorn and watch? And that's what. So yeah. yes, that's was there a time? Well, so when you when your mother's been in King Kong, it's not like you can exactly get away from that that reality and. So my first sort of awareness of her being in King Kong actually uh, came before I saw the film when I was um, in the third grade. And I was new to the school and I was on the playground and a little boy came up to me and said, so uh, I hear your father's an ape. Now, that does not give you the best relationship with the film. I, I have to explain that. And uh, so, and it was that same year that on Million Dollar Movie, they were showing King Kong for the first time, for me. And my mother said, sweetheart, do you think you'd like to see the film? And she said, I think you're old enough. And I thought, well, I'm old enough for anything. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so she put me in front of the TV set, which was a big console on the floor. And I sat practically two feet away from it and uh, started to watch it. And she uh, would kind of walk back and forth in the living room, say, I'm on the way to the kitchen. But she was checking up on me because she was afraid that it would be traumatizing for me to see the film and see her in such jeopardy. So uh, she came back and forth. And then by the end of the film, I was sobbing. And she said, oh my gosh, sweetheart, I am so sorry. I, it must have been so upsetting you, to you to see your mother in jeopardy. And I said, no, you were so mean to King Kong. <laughs> and they killed him. I couldn't get over it. It was like, don't you get it? He just liked you. And I didn't talk to her for at least an hour. <laughs> so I've had this relationship with this 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 fellow as she did all of her career and uh, even though my mother made and starred in over 120 films and television shows King Kong was the film she was always remembered for but I'm glad you saw some of her other films today she actually did also some comedies and some spy movies and she did a, a, a cross-section of films. Um, I just saw her last night in Viva Villa where she shoots Pancho Villa. He deserved it. <laughs> but, uh, so she, she was quite versatile as an actress, but King Kong is the movie that's remembered, and I think it's because it's really an extraordinary film. I don't know how you all feel about it, but I've seen all the remakes. I sort of liked Peter Jackson's version of it, but um, and I've seen it on my book tour now because we've we've I've had uh, screenings and you know at UCLA and at Eastman House and where the beautiful prints have played, and each time I see it, I I remark again to myself on what an extraordinary film it is, and um, the role that it actually played in in, in film history. If, if that's okay, I just want to remind people that this is made in the heart of the Depression. And RKO, as a studio, was in near bankruptcy, if not, in fact, in bankruptcy. And there was a young uh, direct, uh, a producer named David Selznick. Is that a name that's familiar to most of you? 29 years old, who kept kind of <coughs> robbing from Peter to pay 
Paul, or in this case King Kong, he was taking little bits of money from other movies and siphoning them off into King Kong because he had a sense, he had an instinct that this was going to be a, a, a terrific film. So um, it took many months to film because uh, of the stop motion photography, which is really quite brilliant. And today, even people who are super expert in technology and do all the CGI stuff and uh, love this film say, oh, we still don't get how they did some of those shots. Uh, and it, it's kind of true. Um, but when it opened in, uh, in New York, it opened at Radio City Music Hall and then also across the street at an RKO theater. And the first night, first night, 9,000 people went to see it in New York. And overnight, the studio was on its way to solvency. And that, I think over 100,000 people saw it that, that first week. Now, it was not only remarkable because so many people came, but uh, it, it re-stimulated um, interest in movie going because it was in the middle of the Depression. People stopped going to, to movies. <coughs> movie houses were closing down. The studios were facing severe uh, threats to their business uh, because they owned all the theaters as well as the movie making. And uh, now comes along a film that gets people excited again. A few weeks later they opened uh, at Grauman's Chinese. We just showed it a few months ago at Grauman's uh, as part of my book tour. Um, so, so there's that. The other thing I want to say though, in, in my more recent let's say, life with uh, researching and writing the book, um, that the two men who made the film, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoetzak, were really extraordinary guys. And um, they had a whole brilliant life before they ever made this film. Um, Cooper had been an Air Force uh, He'd been a, a pilot during World War One, And in fact, that last scene where the, where the planes are going around, the air, that's Cooper flying the plane, the director. And, and in the back is his co-director, Ernest B. Schoetzak. I mean, they were crazy, frankly. But, um, but Cooper was shot down at, in enemy territory. And when he was shot down, his plane caught on fire, his hands were burned, he had to navigate the plane with his elbows, he landed, he was put in prison, he came out, he joined the Polish Air Force and taught the Poles how to fly and fight the Russians. And then, and then he and Shodzak found each other and they went all around the world taking docu doing documentary films uh, about remote places, and that was a time when people had no idea what most of the world looked like. So they went to Persia, they followed this huge tribe of about 50,000 people going over mountains that were 15,000 feet high, and they took a woman along for color commentary, right? Uh, and they, followed, and they, they, they crossed rivers with the, the animals, and then later they went to Thailand and they filmed <laughs> elephant stampedes. They actually caused them, right? Uh, so that they would stampede and they'd get good footage. So when you see this film, it's autobiographical. 
Carl Denham is this crazy guy who has to bring along a woman, right, to, to sell his movie. And that's exactly what he experienced himself. And at some point, when he's taking photographs of my mother on the deck, he says something like, well, I got rid of my cameraman because there was a rhino who was gonna stampede us and he got scared and I figured I'd just do it myself. That was Cooper. He was writing about himself. So in many ways, this is an autobiographical film. So I, that's all I'm gonna say for about that. Okay, did your mom <laughs> say or have any thoughts on Son of Kong? No. Okay. No, I don't think she ever saw it. Okay, so the, okay. Um, and now <laughs> you mentioned, of course, uh, uh, with those that she kept in touch with mm -hmm. uh, for for years after, way after right. the movie, and. Um, well, in particular, she stayed in touch with, with uh, Marion C. Cooper. She had done a film with him and, and with Ernest B. Schoetzak. She, she'd done a film with uh, Cooper and Schoetzak before called Four Feathers. Uh, that's been made and remade and remade. But, um, and they just liked each other. They were very bright guys, and she loved working with them. And so when it came to, to making... Kong, she had been in New York making a, doing a play with a fellow named Archibald Leach. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Cary Grant. Yes. This is his first kind of role in the United States. And truthfully, she was married at the time, but she had a little crush on him. Nothing came of it, unfortunately. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so when when he came to Hollywood, um, he was given a contract at Paramount, and he said, could he have Faye Ray's dressing room? She was now uh, at Liberty without a contract, and she got a call from Cooper, and he said, Faye, you're going to star opposite the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. And she said, oh my God, I'm going to be with Cary Grant again. <laughs> and then he showed her this picture <laughs> of this con character. But they stayed friends um, uh, and, uh, for the rest of their lives. And, and Shodzak, who, who was very, very tall, he was like over six feet tall, at the genius of the two, the technical genius, and Cooper was probably about five foot seven. He was shorty, and, but they called, they called Monty Shodzak shorty, and Cooper they called Coop. Shodzak uh, ended up the latter part of his life going blind and um, insulated himself pretty much in his house and built hi-fi, you used to call it hi-fi equipment, um, stereo equipment, uh, music equipment, and just listened to music and went into other realms. And my mother was very loyal to him and went to see him regularly. Cooper moved to uh, Palm Springs so they didn't see each other so much, but every time Cooper and my mother saw each other. He would pound his chest, and she would laugh, and that was that was their friendship. That is so good. All those years later. All those years yes. later. Always cared about each other. Let's uh, open up for some questions. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Steve. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I ask, did your mother have any special memories of Eric von Strohmann? Oh yes. <laughs> well, uh, so the first major film she starred in was The Wedding March with Eric von Stroheim. <clears throat> Her, uh, she was 18 years old when she went 
to interview with him. She'd been doing little westerns at Universal Studios, and she wanted to be in a big, wonderful, beautiful picture. So she was excited to have this interview. And uh, she went in to be interviewed by him, and he was wearing, you can picture it, you know, his shaved head, his monocle. He had a white linen suit that had no sleeves. It was hot, and he was very, well, you know, he was very von Stroheim, and he was pacing back and forth and telling her the story of this movie about a Prussian prince uh, who is kind of a, whose family is uh, uh, the royal family are losing money. You know, they've 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 lived a life of excess, and he, the prince, falls in love with the daughter of a man who owns a beer garden, and she's kind of a more of a peasant girl. And anyway, he's telling this whole and it's a very rom. Have you seen the film? It's a very romantic film. I think it's good. it's epic. So she's looking at him and her eyes, she's trying to make her eyes look as big as they possibly can be to say, as if to say, I think everything you're saying is fantastic. And he's just pacing and telling the story. And then finally at the end, he says, well, thank you very much for coming in. And he walks her to the door and he says, so goodbye, not Faye, but he calls her by the name of the character, Mitzi, goodbye Mitzi. She assumed that meant she had the part. So she threw her arms around him and said, oh, thank you, I know you won't be disappointed. Well, then she walked out the door and she said, I don't know if he even meant to offer me the part. <laughs> but he, he kind of was, he melted and he gave her the part. Uh, I talk about, in the book, about, about her uh, ma making the film. There was, it was glorious, it was exciting. He was a bigger than life character. He had a, little mini orchestra on the set. When they went to the beer garden, they had apple blossoms. I think he had like 50,000 or 500,000. No one can remember how many. And everything was very extravagant. The, the Prussian soldiers had uniforms he had imported from, from Europe, including the underwear and the socks. Everything was absolutely perfect. But there was a moment when he misunderstood her and he came on to her. And so that was also a bit of a disappointment because then she didn't know what to do and rejected him and they had to work together. He was sort of annoyed with her. So it was her first experience of that kind of thing too. But the truth is she loved that film the most. And if you see it, she's really quite wonderful. There's some very, just some wonderful scenes in the film. And he was a great filmmaker, but he was a, a man of excess, and they took the film away from him, uh, the producer did, and gave it to von Sternberg, who ended up cutting it for, they sold it to Paramount, sold my mother's contract to Paramount, because he had already made like six hours, I don't know how many hours, how many feet of film he had shot, and he just couldn't stop. And, and that was his downfall, ultimately, a great genius. And by the way, you know, Vaughn is, um, is, a, is a royal name, kind of, in German. He, he, just, he just gave himself that name. He was the son of a haberdasher. <laughs> and that's Hollywood, right? Yes, okay. Yeah. Yes, uh, gentleman here. Who filmed the uh, Volkswagen King Kong commercial? Yeah, that I was in. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you wouldn't know because it's obviously so tiny, you know, right? Um, it's very collectible on film. Yeah, you know, it's, it was. It won a lot of awards. Uh, I think for the technology of it, actually, uh, it's kind of cute. It's a uh, you know when the Volkswagen came out and the idea was that the Volkswagen was so small, so they have Kong picking up a girl that was me and putting her in the car and then driving away. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm trying to remember, I don't know who, who filmed it, do you know? I don't, I remember them him putting one of the planes in the back. And he puts one of the yeah. planes <laughs> in the <laughs> truck. <laughs> it was kind of clever, it was really yeah. charming. And, and, and when, when I published my book, someone found it and sent it to me, I was happy to see it again. Um, Burnett was the name of the the marketing company, but I don't know. David who. Allen, I think, did the stop motion. Yeah. Oh, see, you guys know. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of that was kind of fun. I have that collectible film right here. No. Right here. You know what? There's really something wrong with you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, that was really kind of fun, though. <laughs> okay, yeah. The gentleman, yeah, he had his hand yeah. up. She didn't really talk too much about uh, Lionel Atwell. I'm sh I don't know why. Uh, she did talk about Curtiz, who she said was a pretty cold character, actually. And he ended up doing Casablanca. Right, one of the most romantic films in film history. He was very uh, by the book, kind of cold, um, yeah, and very exacting, yeah. So, uh, no, but she didn't say anything too much about. I'm, I don't, so I don't have a comment on that. What do you think? You know anything about him? Was um, Melvin Douglas anyone that she ever uh, mentioned? Not particularly. Well, more questions? Moving on. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're on in the back. Should we right give him back. a question? You know, he runs this thing. <laughs> Any fun stories with your mom at home? Just fun, everyday stories. My mother had a fabulous sense of humor. Uh, she, Both my parents had a wonderful sense of humor. It was a great environment to grow up in. Um, and uh, uh, we used to, uh, when people would come for dinner, my mother and I would pretend we could speak foreign languages. <laughs> so we'd have these very heated debates in like German or Swedish or, you know, Mongolian. And people were so impressed. <laughs> we didn't know what we were saying, but we, it was very adamant, you know, conversation. We, she was very playful. I mean, I think the thing about my mother, um, so much I admire about her. First of all, she came to Hollywood uh, alone when she was 14 in the care of a young man because her family was so poor, they thought maybe she could get into the movies. So she had a kind of resiliency uh, and, and sweetness um, and intelligence. But for me, when I was growing up with her, um, she made my, made me fresh orange juice every morning, you know, squeezing the, squeezing the oranges. She made my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just the way I like them. 
tuna fish sandwiches every time I went to school. She made, you know, my lunch and put a little note in my lunch box. Have a wonderful day, sweetheart. She was a very dear human being, and um, she always called me Vicola. And I called her Faisy uh, uh, up to the very end of her life. She lived to be 97. And um, she was still fun. She was still fun at, well, maybe her 97th year was she was winding down, but um, there, there were, we laughed a lot. And um, uh, like when Peter Jackson asked her to be in the remake, uh, I was a little reluctant to have that happen because I wanted people to remember this Faye, right, that you saw. But I didn't want to disappoint Peter. I, I admire him a lot. So I arranged for them to meet in New York. And uh, I flew in afterwards to be, she was living in New York, and I said, oh, you met with Peter Jackson. Did you have a nice time? You know, he, he won all the Oscars for uh, The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he was just a huge hit. And she said, oh, okay, well, yeah, we did have dinner. I said, um, so what do you think of him? And she said, He's too fat. <laughs> oh, I said, what did you think of Naomi Watts? And she said, oh, she's too skinny. And I said, do you want to be in his movie? I mean, he's his famous director. She said, no, don't want to be in the movie. And I thought that was so sweet. And I was relieved in a way, you know, because there's, but he, of course, dedicated the film to her. And I thought that was wonderful. So growing up with her, I mean, she used to, I went to summer camp, she would come up to the camp. You know, we'd hang out and go horseback riding together. She was a, a, a person of, of many gifts. <laughs> very bright, very, even though she barely finished high school, well, she didn't really, um, extremely well read. She could do the New York Times crossword puzzle without any difficulty. So that was my mother, and uh, she had a wonderful relationship with my dad, uh, which is the other part of the book. Um, and perhaps he's less well known to you, uh, but you probably know some of the films that he wrote, like It Happened One Night, and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and You Can't Take It With You, and Lost Horizon and Meet John Doe, and Lady for a Day, and uh, the films of the 1930s that uh, were the romantic comedies that had a kind of social underpinning. And so they found each other later in life. He was in his early 40s, and she was in her late 30s, and they had been looking for each other uh, without knowing it. And when they found each other, it was a very extraordinary uh, marriage and love and uh, a real strong commitment to, to good values and caring for their children and then the country because the country was about to go to war when they met and, and uh, when they had their first serious, let's say, evening together was uh, right after Pearl Harbor and right after Hitler declared war on America. So the beginning of their relationship and their marriage was really built around both of them, particularly my father, finding work 
to contribute to the war effort, which meant making films f to distribute overseas to tell uh, people living under fascism um, what America was like. And if I asked you today, what kind of a story would you tell of what's the best part of America? We don't want to talk about the worst part right now. Going through hard times, I think. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot that's wonderful in this country. And uh, that's the story my father wanted people to see. And he actually did one film about the Empire State Building, which was the story of the guy who washed the windows on the Empire State Building. And it's kind of this Buster Keaton character who, who washes the windows and is, and you see this amazing building, but you're just this quirky kind of guy who goes up and down the building and um, loves his little job. So um, anyway, that life at home, and then my father had a stroke, and so my mother's life and my life at home was really one of caring for an ill person, and then my mother went back to work in the 1950s, and uh, she worked in television and took care of her children. So, you know, this little lovely person you saw is really a a pioneer lady in a lot of ways. Yeah. I believe this gentleman, you had a question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, if I'm not mistaken, was she approached to appear in Titanic? She was approached to appear in Titanic, and she seriously wanted to, to possibly, I mean, to consider that. She met with uh, Jim Cameron, and she didn't really like him. And part of it was, um, he, well, I don't want to go into why she didn't like him. I mean, she just didn't click with him, let's say. She, she, uh, he was kind of mechanical about things. And, um, and so, she did, so he, you know, he went on to Gloria Stewart, who, who was terrific, by the way, so, and a lovely person who I hung out with a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so she was approached. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, maybe, maybe it was okay. What do you, did you like that movie? It was okay. It was okay. Wait, was there a question in the back? Yes, sir. Hello, thank you for being here with us. We really enjoy you. Um, my question was, one of my favorite all-time movies ever, I was a pre from 33, The Bowery. Oh, I love The Bowery. And, and yeah. Yes, and I just wanted to know what, how was the relationship with her uh, working with Wallace Geary and George Black? I mean, you had two big heads there in that film. I mean, I really enjoyed the film, and I loved it in the film. Right, and I think that's Raoul Walsh, who was the director, right? And yeah, no, it's a, I like that film a lot. It's got grit, it's got uh, texture. Um, I know that there was apparently uh, some, some scene where, he, it's not in the final cut, I don't think, where he had to slap her, uh, George Raft had to slap her, and and Raoul Walsh kept saying, "No, it's not quite right yet." He would whack her again. No, it's not quite right. Whack her again, and she was just kind of a, you know a, took it in whatever good stride she could. And afterwards, Raft just felt horrible, and he said, "You're so sweet, you know. I'm so sorry. You're the kind of girl a guy would marry, you know, not." slug. <laughs> so, um, 
So um, I think that was a really a nice experience. And she, um, the kid, Jackie Coogan, was in the film. And she felt very maternal towards him. So I think that was um, 1932, one? 33, was it 33? Yeah. Yeah, I think she rather, I like that. I have a picture of her in the Bowery. That's the, my favorite photograph of her. I have two photographs of her that I have on my wall at home. And one is of her in the Bowery. And the other is this fabulous picture that George Harrell took, who was one of Hollywood's very, very top photographers who did, you know, that whole thing about glamour in the 1930s and what it looked like. It was really George Harrell who created the Hollywood glamour look. There's never been anybody better than that. So I have that on my wall. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, gentlemen. Yeah. You mentioned your mom going back to work. Yeah. Did you ever get to go to the set and see her work? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was sort of strange. You know, here's the person who's making my sandwiches. And then we go over and I visit a set. And suddenly everybody is fussing about, you know, Miss, Miss Ray, you know, can I hold your purse? Here's a chair. Can I touch up your nose? You know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really different. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I loved going to the set. I mean, the thing about movie sets, and I was a producer myself, and for me, the best part of making a movie is hanging out on a set where people get along, because it's like one big family, and it's very intense, and you're together long hours for a limited period of time. And um, my 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 feeling was as a producer was to make the very best working environment I possibly could and to appreciate people. Not all producers work that way. Certainly not all directors work that way. But generally she worked with very good people and I loved being on the set with her. Tammy and The Bachelor, there was all of these live television shows that she did. She did a television series with Natalie Wood and um, so I would, I would go, but not all the time, because for a child, it can get kind of boring, you know. I mean, that sounds funny, but it does get boring, where you're waiting for the lights to go up and then something to happen, and you think, phew, I could be home, you know, playing with my dolls. <laughs> yeah. We have time for one more. Did your mother ever encourage you to become an actress? Um, no, she didn't really. She wanted me to do something that was right for me. I did study acting for a while, and um, the only problem that I had with that is that when I got up on stage, I wanted to throw up, and it's just not good. It's just not a good thing. I, I'm just not a person who loves being in front of a camera. I, I don't. I love talking to audiences. This is fabulous for me to be here with you. I like to be able to see people, look in their eyes, and know them. Um, I, you know, I just I like to be me. I don't like to be somebody I'm not. So I wasn't cut out for acting, but I liked writing and I liked producing. So behind the camera is a good spot for me. It was one more question, and then yes, yes, if it's okay, yes, I'll let people go to bed. That's what I hear. Like you party really late here. It's cool. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I'm a late comer. Did anyone ask 
questions about the dangerous game, the most dangerous game. No, but you know, uh, no one did, but so would you like to? Absolutely. Okay. It's actually my second favorite Fay Ray movie. Uh -huh. and, uh, I know a little bit about it, about how it was filmed like on the spare time that they had between Kong sets. Did she share any stories about that? Because it's like one of my favorite movies from that era. She didn't share a lot of stories about that, except the, the challenge of sometimes working both on King Kong and The Most Dangerous Game, literally uh, on the same day. So where she would have to go racing from one set to, to the other, you know, have a little bite of lunch and then be, uh, but it was the same, uh, not set, but the, the jungle scenes were the same, the same set, really. So. So, and I, it, I never uh, had met Joel McRae's son, and we were at a, a movie festival this summer together, and he, what a great guy he was, he's darling, so you should have him here. He, he would probably love to come. Um, so, but that's a, it's kind of a good movie, isn't it? I mean, I think that guy who played Count Zaroff is really scary, and kind of, kind of, yeah, evil, pretty awful. Yeah, <laughs> and she's kind of sweet in the film. I kind of like her, there's a, you probably don't watch comedies, but there's a movie called The Affairs of Cellini. Um, no one's seen it, okay. So, <laughs> well, in doing, in doing my book, I, ha I saw a lot of films that I hadn't seen. And she plays, well, I, I don't know, what I love about it is she plays a complete bimbo. I mean, just an opposite to Fay Ray kind of thing. And I think she was just tired of being a, the objet d'art, you know, this beautiful woman. <laughs> and she, she plays with Frederick March, who's, who plays kind of an Errol Flynn failed, uh, you know, uh, swashbuckler. It's, it's all tongue in cheek. And she's the uh, love interest. And uh, she just doesn't get anything, you know. She's just dumber than. <laughs> Dishwater, is that the word? You're dumber than something. I can't remember what you're dumber than. And I just love that. I thought that was great. Uh, and it's a kind of a funny, charming music. The, the, uh, the swashbuckler is, is being threatened to be killed by uh, Frank Morgan, who we all know from Wizard of Oz, the wizard, who plays a, 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 a duke. And the only reason he doesn't kill Frederick March is because he, he falls in love with a bimbo. Well, he falls in serious like. And she just doesn't get it, which is great. Anyway. In closing, uh, yeah. would you like to um, share kind of an overview of your book uh, as far as uh, she, oh. at her table, obviously, <laughs> you have, but, uh, but you know, it's a fascinating, um, you know, just from start to finish, uh, yeah. Anything you would Say like. a few words about it. Sure, please. Well, I didn't really know I was going to write a book. It's probably a good idea to know you're going to write a book when you're going to write a book. But I, I, um, I think I, I got to that point in my life where I, well, first of all, I had stopped writing and producing in Hollywood. I was living in Santa Barbara, and a woman said to me. Um, Oh, who I met for the first time, you know, we kind of liked her, and she said, would you like to join my memoir writing group? And I, I don't know why I said yes. Now, I could have said no, and I would have had a whole lot more time on my hands. <laughs> but I said yes, and I think it's because, uh, so for some of us, as you reach a certain stage of life, 
you really do want to know about your family and where you came from and um, who who the people are who make up you know your genetic heritage and of course as I dove into the story my early memories and then the story of my father's family and my mother's family and they came so much to life uh, in the writing and I could follow their footsteps and that foot those footsteps came to Hollywood at a very exciting and interesting time in the middle of the depression there were labor wars and uh, there was the, the studio system and the glamour and the parties and the build up to the war and even into the blacklist era. And so there was this extraordinary fabric of both who they were as people and uh, the qual they had really were quality people and um, they were wonderful to follow. And I could follow them not as a little girl looking up at parents who, you know, I could follow them as individuals and get to know them anew and with whole new uh, glasses and weave in my own story so that I could make a bookend out of it and, um, um, and then kind of figure out for myself uh, what I had drawn from them personally and how they had influenced my, my, my life. And I felt I was kind of closing a loop, making a circle, a lovely circle, and putting it in. At the very end of the book, I talk about um, wanting my parents to be together again, and my father was buried in one cemetery, and my mother had chosen another cemetery. It's a great cemetery in LA called Hollywood Forever Cemetery. If you ever get to LA, you have to go there. Everybody's buried there. I mean, it is. Talk about Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks, and you know, they're all big, everybody's buried there. But it had fallen into disrepair, and it was just, it's been re refurbished, and they have movie nights all summer long, and it's, wow. it's just the sob of Los Angeles activity. And, and I had even thought of taking my father and, and, and making a place for him next to her. But you know, that wasn't the, that's the Hollywood ending. And I, and I decided that I was going to write a book and, and tell the story the way it is and not, and not change the ending. And, and I think they are together in spirit. Absolutely. So, and I want to thank all of you for coming tonight so late and listening to my story. So, thank you.